This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. As part of our special holiday gift package, uh, we have today uh, the first of two um, mixes of voices from the last year. Voices we've heard and learned from and voices that have shared uh, insights and uh, reflections and humor with us at times. Uh, Zachary, this has been fun, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. A theme that really comes through, too, is uh, this theme of how important uh, race is and how important identity is. And that's something that I think we've really been able to elucidate over the past few months. I, I think that's right. You know, you, we often hear uh, criticisms of identity politics and uh, concerns about uh, insensitivity to race and identity. So you can hear both sides of the argument there. I think in our programs, in our uh, clips that we'll play, on uh, this mosaic of thoughts, we'll hear actually how sophisticated and creative uh, many of our friends and colleagues are in, in bringing race into our democracy and bringing uh, different identities into the way we think about democracy. Yeah. Well, let's take a listen. Let's take a listen. Some of these earlier conceptions that I was raised with, an earlier generation, uh, have faded away. And there's this very different individualistic and family and friend-centric uh, worldview that now comprises the American dream. Did this surprise Which you, been, Sam? Oh, I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, again, so many people talk about monetary uh, backgrounds, and it has nothing to do with that. Hmm. And, and or little. Let me, let me rephrase. It has little to do with that. Is Money it? still matters, right. but not nearly as much. And what's interesting is when you break it down, so I actually said, okay, well, let me run this uh, and look at people who are wealthy versus a lot less wealthy mm-hmm. and see if there, there's much of a difference here. The answer was no. They just didn't diverge, hmm. even though I expected that to possibly show up. Hmm. Hmm. And, and what do you take as the implication of that? Well, the implication is that when you ask people, are we living the American dream, are you on your way to achieve it, or is it just not possible, about 80 to 82 percent of Americans right now say they're either living the dream or are on the way to achieving hmm. it, uh, quite optimistic. Uh, and again, it's, it's remarkably consistent. You know, one, one story that we, we always hear about is that the coasts are booming and, and uh, there are few uh, spots, uh, you know, in flyover country. And I hate using that word, but that's what so many people like to say. But in, in the, the heartland of America, uh, and, you know, these people are suffering. They're not realizing the American dream. When you break it apart, we're not seeing these differences at all. So what I take from this is that it would be good to share this narrative and remind America that despite the frustrations uh, that people are having now, despite the negativity, despite the political class uh, and the chatter of negativity and seeming culture war that we may have, uh, it's not as bad. And we may want to remind ourselves that we're all still able to, most of us are able to live our lives the way we want. It's uh, a value that almost all Americans seem to, to, you know, embrace. And, uh, you know, we could use a good kick in the pants to remind ourselves that things are not as bad. I think the biggest thing, that contribution we can make to American democracy is bringing 
a culture of compassion and cooperation hmm. uh, to our political system. Because today, if you look at the levels of polarization um, and the level of contempt we have for people of different views, uh, it's toxic. And it's at some of the worst levels uh, since Absolutely. the Civil War. And that is a, a, a fundamental threat to democracy. But our generation has grown up in this peer-to-peer environment. And we uh, are a more inclusive uh, generation, and and that's true for every successive generation. And so we don't see issues um, of race and gender and sexual orientation in in the same way. And we tend to be much more inclusive and welcoming of these different identities. And so um, if we can bring a level of compassion to our politics at a time when our country is becoming much more uh, diverse, uh, that will be potentially the biggest contribution as we seek this goal of being a multi-ethnic uh, democracy. And, uh, and I think we're, we're, we're headed in that direction, but it's really going to require millennials to create the kinds of communication, the kinds of understanding, uh, the kinds of networks, and the political culture uh, we need for that type of understanding and compassion to exist. If we're ever going to get equality, we're going to have less racial privilege. And men, and, and Jeremy knows this too, because I know Jeremy is, is a feminist and so is Zachary as well. We're, we're going to lose male privilege because it's not equal. We're going to lose male privilege. Sure. And we have to embrace that. We, so we don't run away from it and say, oh my gosh, why do women want equal pay? We say, we love our daughters, our sisters, our mothers. And we can say we learn from them and are mentored by them, right? right. That's what we say, right? But we're still, we're still men. We're still human beings. But we don't have to dominate anybody mm-hmm. to be who we are. So mm-hmm. part of this is a politics of racial privilege. But part of it is really that morally, we've lost sight of why racial integration matters. No system is uh, free of human frailties. How do we learn to address these issues? How can we be honest about the limitations of our systems? We have to be realistic and skeptical, as well as ideological. And then third, um, I think uh, one of the real lessons from Siena and Florence is that uh, good government requires good institutions and good people in those institutions. And uh, finding good people to be representative of us, electing good people, supporting good people. Uh, There's no substitute for integrity. Intelligence is important, but there's no substitute for integrity. Most of us choose uh, our life partners because we choose them for integrity. We should choose our representatives based on integrity as well. That's a lesson from the Renaissance. Well, most workplaces are not democracies, right? I mean, it is ironic in this country where we like to think that uh, we can help shape our own environment, that workplaces are often tyrannical places. You're told where to be, at what time, uh, how long to do this, in some cases, whether you can take a bathroom break or not, how much time you have for lunch. These are very difficult work sites. Uh, People spend a great deal of their working hours in these workplaces, and yet they have very little say over their own lives and, uh, you know, what is um, a good way to handle this job, what is a bad way. You know, most employers say, do it, or we'll find someone else to do it. So uh, I just think the workplace is is a uh, kind of ironic place if we talk about democracy. 
one case is that I've never been elected to the executive committee of my department. Again, it might be, at the beginning I thought it was because I'm not uh, sympathetic enough. I mean, that is fine. But then if you, <laughs> <laughs> if you, begin, if you begin to see these patterns, wider patterns, it, hap- it so happens that it's, it's, it's widespread. It's not only me, but it's widespread. So most Hispanics on campus are outside uh, uh, networks of authority and 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 and, and hierarchies of authority. Uh, there is only two deans in the entire university who are Hispanics, and these are deans of very poor colleges, education and social work, uh, with very little clout in general. Um, then there is one example. I just want to put you on one example, uh, which is striking because it's the case of Lilas. Lilas is the Latin American uh, Studies Center, of one of the greatest on earth, literally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, dating back to, uh, this is a surprise to me. I didn't know. I thought it was a, a, the product of the Cold War. It, it is not. Right. Precedes it. it. Right. Precedes. Yeah. Uh, founded in, in 1943 or something. I think so, yeah. And it has. So it has a history of about 80 years or more, 80, 79 years or so. There, there, it has had 13 directors, none of them Latinos or Hispanic. The rhetoric was full pays pay for your low-income students. Okay. So that's embedded, right, in us. We need the full pays. But now it's it still is this... Um, this save, white savior complex uh-huh. almost. Okay. Um, and I have a huge problem with that because I feel like it takes dignity away from the community by saying that one community is paying for right. the other. Right. Um, so in addition, there's also this, um, we say, oh, when we are recruiting multicultural students, low-income students, our first-generation students, you know, it's diversity. We coin them, it's adding diversity. It's, if we do this, it's adding value. So there's a return on the investment right. for the community that already exists here. Mm-hmm. It's, never, it's never a rhetoric of the other way around. We only tell the story one way. Yes. Um, it, in my opinion, it should be, we're doing this because... This community deserves it, right? Um, and we have a civic duty to do so, right? Um, and that should be the value add, not that hey. And it happens in corporate America as well. Sure. When you think about sure. it, they talk about oh, let's do diversity and recruitment, chief sure. diversity officers, so that and it proves that we'll get higher revenues, higher right. profits, right? Instead of no, people just deserve these positions because they're equally as good, right. if not better. Working. First as a journalist, then, uh, you know, as an activist, then on a political campaign where I learned a lot of things about what not to do, (laughs) you know, in the Senate office, in the executive branch, as a diplomat. I think what you learn is how to build coalitions inside government and with other countries, you know, how to speak to individuals from the vantage point of their equities and and their interests. And so... Is much more about taking the same old vector from that I probably have have had or been on from the very beginning, but operationalizing it, um, you know, in in complicated institutions. I mean, how to work with Congress, sure. especially in an era of polarization. Um, you know, what is the right way to establish a partnership with the chairman of the Joint Staff on peacekeeping, for mm-hmm. example? Like, I might have always thought that peacekeeping mm-hmm. should be improved, but to figure out how to make that argument effectively with the Pentagon, that was a different language for me. 
Hong Kong people have never been able to vote for their top leader, and um, not when it was the British colony, not since the handover. And so this is really um, something that Hong Kong people want. They want they want a leader that they that they vote for that it that can be held re- accountable. And mm-hmm. because right now a big issue too with uh, Carrie Lam is. She has said she's not stepping down. She's not resigning, and she's going to continue with her role. Um, but um, she is not popular right. among Hong Kong people, and because Hong Kong people feel that they, she has made mistakes, um, and she is not bearing the responsibility. So, those, so that's another issue that that the protesters want the government to address. Well, we should say from the outset that clearly not all North Koreans believe this, you know, because if they all believe this, there would be no defectors. Right. And people do defect every year. But it's actually, it's an astonishingly small number. I, and I just checked the numbers last week, and I want to say it was less than 30,000 over the last 10 years. Wow. That is not a large number of no. defectors. And many of these defectors actually end up going back to North Korea. Hmm. And this is very, very hard for us to understand. But the reason that they do is because in North Korea, life is about something. And many of these people come to the South, and they try to integrate into, uh, you know, a liberal capitalist society, and the South Korean government does what they can to help them. Um, But the, the truth is they find life there very alienating, and they find life in China very alienating, because as twisted as the narrative is that the regime tells them, it actually gives purpose to their struggle, and it really gives meaning to their life. You know, their life is a daily struggle for survival for the Korean race. And this is something that gives them meaning and gives them purpose. And they have a hard time really reorient- reorientating their life in another way. Right. And, and it's important to note, too, that this is what they're taught. And certainly, even if they don't believe it, it's hard for them to know what to believe because there's no counter-narrative to this information in North Korea, no consistent counter-narrative coming in. When we were sitting and waiting in, in, the, in, the, in the waiting room, the hall, there's like a big hall, maybe 60, 70 people waiting, and you're watching people go in and out. Yes. And you see some people come out and they got big smiles on their face, and you know things went well. But once in a while you have, you know, somebody walk through that door and, and you can see they're on the verge of breaking oh. down. Um, that made the process real for me. And that made me realize that, you know, we often talk about immigration in this country. We talk about policies, politics, ideology. We talk about all kinds of things. It's easy to forget that there are real people who are going through this process. Yes. Um, and I, I can't judge whether, you know, some of those folks had their their naturalization process denied for right or wrong reasons. I, I can't comment on that. What I can say is, though, that you could see on their face that th- this was a life-shattering, you know, event. Of course, um, of course. And that really brought it home. Well, and for many of them, uh, this is not just a dream. This, this is a source of salvation, right? Yes. might be a question of survival. Absolutely. Yeah, so in our experience running these focus groups with Ukrainian students, I think cynicism is one of the big overarching themes that we've seen. And I don't think it's tied to any kind of regional variation. We've spoken to students in the east, in cities like Kharkiv, or in the west, like cities like Lviv and Ivano-Frankivsk. And I think overall, there's this general kind of cynicism that uh, 
all the candidates that are running are corrupt and that their vote doesn't matter. And unfortunately, that seems to be the case with the young generation, which we in the West f- hope to be the, the, the generation that really brings Ukraine into the modern world. Right. So you don't see them as idealistic? I don't, really. Um, it, it, it hasn't been all that positive, I'd say. Lauren, your team has has interviewed so many uh, of these counterparts of yours there. Uh, beyond beyond this cynicism and uh, concern about leadership, what else strikes you about them? I think it's just a lack of direction in which to turn. Um, and I think that's perfectly our articulated in what we are seeing out of Ukraine this Sunday. Um, I don't think any of us are particularly surprised because of what we've heard from these students um, is, as my counterparts have said, they're so disenfranchised from, because they're like Zachary was saying earlier, is they weren't there necessarily right. during the Soviet, um, right. during Soviet rule. However, they are the product um, of the trauma from that time period. Mm-hmm. And so we don't necessarily hear them drawing lines of connection between that time period and today, but we see the impact of it. It's kind of like trauma and how mm-hmm. trauma is magnified generationally sure. down the line. The narrative here is that they are America's allies against ISIS. The Turkish narrative that's been repeated over and over and over and again in a very heavily government-controlled press, is that they've been using ISIS as a tool to camouflage their national aspirations. That the Kurds have been secretly collaborating with ISIS. No, not that they've been secretly collaborating, but that they use the the threat of, of, of ISIS as a tool to leverage um, their way to the national aspirations, maybe even statehood, um, that, 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 they, that they would like, and um, and of course, I, I mean, while I, I have deep skepticism about how realistic it is to relocate um, four and a half million Syrians into Syrian Arabs into a previously Kurdish um, uh, set of neighborhoods that didn't come from there in the first place, um, that resonates very well in in a a country. I mean, imagine, I mean, that if if the United States had been taking care of 16 million um, refugees for five years with very little help from from other places, and they've done a very good job. The camps, I mean, particularly if you compare them to the way we've been treating some of the uh, Mexican migrants and the separation of families, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera, and, you know, no, you know, inadequate toilet facilities and no toilet paper and no toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, um, the, 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 the Turkish Red Crescent Society has done a, just a remarkable job of taking care of the refugees. Yeah, and four and a half million refugees is a lot of it's people. It's a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think my most powerful single memory of this whole period was not the parting of the Berlin Wall itself, but it's when East Germans began that night streaming across the border. Yes. Some of them women who put their overcoats over their nightgowns because they'd been awakened by their friends that they could go into the West. Coming across with tears streaming down their faces, being applauded by West German, West Berliners. Yes. And then they realized these West Berliners were applauding them. Right. So it was a a, a, a sort of a, a, a continental Yes. Reconciliation. Yeah, and I I, uh, so deeply and vividly remember, you know, watching the—I was a high schooler, watching 
individuals who look like high school students from both sides coming together and partying on the wall. <laughs> and for a 17-year-old watching that, you thought, wow, this is possible in the world, right? Uh, may maybe, you know, maybe a little bit of partying will get us beyond all the violence. <laughs> I'm for that. I mean, it's just astonishing when one looks at the history of, you know, the struggle to be free, the struggle to have democracy. If one actually looks at that story, um, uh, one the perspective starts to change in which you realize, boy, these people have been oppressed. They've at some points been so desperate that they've been willing to engage in suicidal missions, meaning they have no chance of killing President Truman. They had no chance. These people went there to die. And, and, you know, the more you get close to it, the more you start to understand there, you know, th there's some crisis going on here. Why did some of these guys go up there to try to assassinate Truman? Well, because there had been a series of police murders in their hometowns. And eventually these people are so desperate that so, so there is a human struggle that was not caused by anyone who's in government in the United States right now. And 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 and. And that at the same time has a legacy yes. of, of, of inequity and difference that, that if one invests the time to learn about it, inevitably one starts sympathizing more with these neighbors that we call Puerto Ricans. Yes. I think that history is, is the most important uh, subject of study today because uh, of the, the memory is uh, a question of uh, identity, of collective identity and of social identity. And uh, um, in Italy, actually, we are uh, moving in uh, this direction because the, the study of history is uh, taken out of schools. Yes, yes. Yes, and... Uh, uh, um, in the new uh, programs, uh, the history have a short part. Uh, yes. Yes. So and people are more ignorant. Yes, and, and, and it, this is a big, big, big problem because uh, people don't remember uh, uh, the the reason. Some people may do better explaining content or explaining a report that they've done by speaking it yes. or acting it out yes. than they would with you know, filling out a multiple choice test. Precisely. So I, I think um, continuing to investigate ways where we can all share our talents in a way that's that's not so standardized. You know, and, and, and like you said, I know there's times when standardization has a role. There, you know, there there are some maybe benefits to that. But, but I think, you know, special ed has done a terrific job. And teachers in general have done a great job with differentiating their assignments and, um, realizing that that the products or the things that students may turn in are not going to look the same for everyone and they probably shouldn't because we do have individual right. needs and and talents um a good example that always comes to my mind is a lot of people don't realize this but you know students with with learning disabilities which which a lot of people don't even understand because it's kind of an invisible disability right. sometimes when we think of special ed we think of wheelchairs and and um the more obvious physical disabilities but but we taught a when I was was teaching in Binghamton, New York, we, we had a couple, we had two students in particular, um, two boys that I, I was uh, really enjoyed teaching a lot. Both had learning disabilities and reading and dyslexia, but the teachers used to refer to them, their math tests as the key. You know, they'd say, you know, before we can correct all the other math quizzes or tests, we need to get the, te the test that these two boys took because we know they're all going to be right. So I think 
realizing that that people with disabilities have you know pretty incredible talents just because you you maybe need a little extra support in one area i I think highlighting and emphasizing the talents and the skills that they have in other areas is really important zuckerberg is the administrator of a game and the game is that we are all connected socially now for the first time in human history through the world's greatest digital revolution and network revolution with supercomputers in our pockets, as you you pointed out in your your, your poem, that have more power than sending a man to the moon. It's amazing. It's amazing. amazing. And so we're living in this time of incredible uh, potential abundance. And it could be the most glorious time in humanity and it should be, and I think it will be, but it's going to take um, it's going to take people rising up that go out there and say we're going to do things with better intentionality. And one thing I can tell you for a fact is the B Corporation movement is very much on the rise. The conscious capitalism movement is very much on the rise. I think. The good thing about social media is that it gives you the platform to inspire somebody. Um, It gives you the platform to share your ideas and to collaborate with people. And I also know for me, I have a lot of family overseas. I don't get to see them very often. So, um, and one of my cousins overseas in Spain, he um, is really into parkour. And I get to see those videos of him uh, doing that around the city. And it does inspire me to find my own passion and to do something outside and to be active. And so um, I think that is the benefit to connect with people that you can't normally see and to be inspired by people that you normally would not talk to. How do you make sure that your social media is about that? And not about the Kardashians and going Um, and taking shots on 6th Street. Again, it's about who you follow. You get to choose your timeline. I feel like people forget that. They forget that you are the one who construct what your social media is going to look like. Um, I remember talking to one of my friends. I was like, gosh, I'm so sick of going on Instagram and I see the same exact pose and Mm -hmm. the same exact... um, fake filters and you know Instagram was originally made to be look at what my life is through my eyes and to see the world in a different perspective and she's like does why doesn't yours she's like mine does mine is filled with photography mine is filled with art she's like you're the one who chose to follow those peoples and I was like wow you you are correct and so I did go back and I muted some people and I've unfollowed some people and um, I think it was better for me. Is your curriculum open to creativity and different identities, or is it not? It's open to creativity in the sense that we, and especially in the humanities, we do a lot of projects. Like, there's some, a lot of opportunities for projects. In essays, often, sometimes, there's been, um, you're allowed to really just express yourself in, like, your own writing style that's not, like, super, like, rigid to a rubric. Um, but the parts I got really frustrated because multiple cho- uh, multiple choice tests are a very rigid and kind of unfair way to test whether or not you know something. Because a lot of times I experience, and I know my I've talked to my friends and they feel the same way that you know it, but you just you you know the information like decently. You just the questions you just go over your head, and you can't really show the teachers that you know it. But I also understand that there's so many students; it's not really a way around it. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. 
The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.